Okay, so we just watched uh, Pulp Fiction, and yeah. uh, he's always influenced by uh, Peck and Paw. He used to talk about that all the time. So he, we got to establish the proper Tarantino, now. right? Right, yeah. and so he loves the Wild Bunch, and we saw that. So which which one do you want to do? Uh, let's let's start let's start with uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. What? Yeah. So the one influenced by Tarantino. The one influenced by Tarantino, which okay. is the one that we've most recently watched. Okay, let's do that. Right. Okay, so I'm Bentley. And I'm Samuel. And this is the Review Podcast. Podcast. All right, so you had never seen Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. No, this is Guy Ritchie's directorial debut. This is where he begins as a filmmaker, but you can still see the threads of everything that he's drawing on in terms of cinematic influences. You can see the Tarantino in there. You can see the, the staples of British filmmaking and tradition that he's pulling from. And he's pouring this all into London in 1998. And he's shooting it almost entirely in these sepia tones. And it's grainy and it's gross. And I don't think the sun ever shines. I think it's <laughs> no, I don't think Always so overcast. <laughs> and it's... And this is coming out at the same time as a lot of things, uh, you know, post Pulp Fiction, uh, where everybody's rushing to sort of get that same kind of smart dialogue, lots of intricate uh, plot lines, uh, ensemble casts, right? I mean, this is the same time that Swingers is coming out. Uh, Train Spotting has come out just a few years before it. So this whole vibe is just everywhere. So the question is why does Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels? rise to the top now we have not done train spotting for the review podcast and so maybe uh if we can get to that it would change my view of whether this movie should be in the can but i'll tell you what having seen this again for the first time in maybe 15 years i loved it yeah it i think it holds up really really well it's incredibly funny very light on its feet it has a very it's it's strange because it's the only movie I've ever seen that has a really intricate plot line, but it almost kind of doesn't matter if you're following. <laughs> if you can't keep up with all the threads, it doesn't really matter because there's so much happening going on that will be totally irrelevant in five minutes. Like there's the, things will happen, events will shift, and you'll be like, oh man, that's that's a total change of the status quo. And then five minutes later, the buck's been passed to someone else again. You just have to keep up. You have to keep up. Yeah, so that's what makes it, um, you know, it's a caper movie, but it sort of feels more like a mystery, right? In a mystery, the information about who done it is doled out to the audience piece by piece so that you're trying to figure it out. Um, and in the caper movie, you know, things are happening. It's a little more uh, action-oriented rather than information-oriented. And so I, as a communications professional, love that about Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels that, you know, it's not just what happens when, but every single event changes based on what people know. Mm -hmm. In other words, like there's no car chase in this movie. There's literally, I mean, there's some street scene but mainly, the action moves forward because people learn things, right? Some character learns something and then starts to act on that. And then you're right, five minutes later, that information is outdated. Yes, <laughs> so but still being passed along. But still being passed along. So in that way, in 1998, you, guess what? You had made a remark about how that movie wouldn't be possible you know, if you've got smartphones and texting. But you know what? It kind of presages 
the world we live in now where, you know, how fast you get information really matters. Yeah, absolutely. I really, really like the original tagline of this film as a summary of, of everything that Guy Ritchie's trying to do here, which is, it just says, a disgrace to criminals everywhere. Because a really important part of the thesis and the heartblood of this film is that everyone, to some degree, involved in this caper is an idiot is is not smart or is missing things or or is overconfident yeah. everyone has some either moral or intellectual failing <laughs> so in that of way a great enormity like it's not a small flaw right the only person who comes across as being like totally smooth and in control is the person who's probably as removed from the situation as you can be Sting. Sting, of Sting course. Sting is in this. Sting is like the Greek chorus almost. Yeah, Sting <laughs> shows up basically to play Sting. He's, he's, as a bar owner. As a bar owner. He's, he's always shot like really in really intense lighting. His skin is so good in this movie. Uh, as opposed to like everyone else's skin, which is like pockmarked <laughs> and pale. You know, he looks healthy. He looks scary. He's, he's, he's... Even when they shoot him in, there's one scene, there's only one scene where he's in broad daylight. Even then, it's still in a car, the camera's tight on his face. Like, he is the myth of Sting in this film. <laughs> and and he's the only one who comes across with any degree of competency because he looks around at everyone and goes, this is all stupid. This well, is... because he's also survived this. He's you, survived you, this. You, if you read the trivia on IMDb about this, they cut out a scene that basically explains that he went through all this when he was a young man. And one of the main characters that sets this plot in motion is his son. So he's literally watching his son go through this same kind of shenanigan. Yeah. Um, we haven't mentioned it, actually, at this point, that this is a star-making performance and vehicle for Jason Statham. Jason Statham is, in fact, this is his first professional acting role. And he's one of 17 actors in this film who can claim that. That this is the first time they've ever acted in anything. Out of 44 speaking roles, 17 of those speaking roles have never acted before this film. And Matthew Vaughn directs them all to great performances. In my mind... Matthew Vaughn. I'm sorry, I'm Matthew Vaughn. Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie directs them all to excellent performances. Yeah. And in my mind, that's the mark of a great director. Oh, absolutely. He's able to steer the ship, keep them on track, and, and follow this crazy mixed-up plot that he's concocted. Well, and they're all believable, right? So I've said this on other podcast episodes that... What really makes a movie last for me is when the characters are very clearly defined, they're interesting. Uh, you know, they don't all have to be witty, right? They don't have to drop one-liners left and right. Uh, and there's a lot of humor in this movie that isn't straight-up one-liners. But all the characters are, are pretty distinct, right? I, I really enjoyed seeing the interplay of all these different people. Yes, a lot of them are morons, but you know, that to me shows the influence of the Coen brothers on Richie. Right, this very much feels like a Coen Brothers uh, movie, you know, like Fargo or, or um, you know, even Lebowski, where there are a bunch of morons trying to commit, you know, some sort of illegal act, and it falls apart because they're morons. Um, except that this movie has a lot more energy to it, and there are plenty of Coen Brother movies. Love the Coen Brothers, but there are a lot of times where I feel like I've just fallen into 
uh, tar pit and I can't get back out because they just start to meander and they think that the characters are the only reason you're watching. And so any sense of plot or motion just gets lost. I, I just started trying to watch, what's the movie they said about their own childhood in Minnesota? Uh, Good Man? I don't know. Uh, a Serious Man. A serious Man. A Serious Man. So I just started trying to watch that because I think it's on Netflix now. And I'm only about 30 minutes in because it's all character and it's just kind of boring. But Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels is not boring. No, sir. Uh, it's 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 just so marked by by its characters' continuous failures to accomplish their objectives. It is all about falling backwards into things and making the most of the opportunities you have put in front of you, and being able to think on your feet. Because honestly, if this movie has a thesis, it's that like. Planning is for suckers. Like it's, it's like any sort of plan you have beyond the next thirty seconds is mice and men, baby. It's it's dust. That's true. Because they at the beginning of the movie, everyone saved up twenty five thousand quid and they all give it to the the yeah. card player. They've got a big like, plan. Oh, this is gonna be great. We're all get a twenty percent return. Yeah, that plans. falls apart. Dog and his guys who are gonna go rob. The weed guys, yeah. their plan gets blown wide open when the At cage, the very beginning. Or the cage yeah. stays locked. Yeah. Then when you know the gang of Jason Statham and all of his buddies get the stuff back, they're like, oh, man, we're going to plan to sell this to yeah. this other crime lord guy. Yeah, they, they, think, find it. they think they've finally figured they it all out. Yeah. And yeah. they find out it was originally stolen from him. Yeah. So it, it's, <laughs> it's honestly, if the movie has any thesis, it's that Planning is for suckers, and just try and fall backward. Make the most of any opportunity at any given second. So this is what brings us back into, you know, this. we've watched three movies that are actually thematically linked very tightly, and the creative forces uh, behind them are linked. So Guy Ritchie is making a movie in the wake of Pulp Fiction, and Pulp Fiction has maybe two of these twists, right? There are a couple of big twists in Pulp Fiction, uh, that drive a lot of the action, and we'll talk about that more when we get to that podcast. But in this one, you don't have two or three. You've got 12. Yeah. <laughs> You've yeah. got 12 twists like you would like Pulp Fiction for. Yeah, and some of them are totally disposable. Some of them don't matter in five minutes, and, and I love that. There's a lot happening in this film, but I'd say that, and I still mean this as a, in a positive respect, a lot happens but not a lot matters. Like it's, it's yes, it's a well, movie that's kind where, of the joke of the whole movie. Yeah, a lot of things happen, but so what? You know, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or things that you think are small play a very large hand in the resolution of the film, including the traffic constable. Yes, who is a gag? Who is a joke? Yeah. Who is yeah. a oh, this guy doesn't matter, and yeah. he's in the background, and who cares? We're all taking turns beating the crap out of him, <laughs> and then at the end, he's the only person who might still get them into any sort of legal jeopardy. Yes, because if they hadn't messed with him, yeah, they'd be totally in the clear, and they wouldn't have to get rid of the guns, and they wouldn't have to do any of that. Mm. They'd be free and clear. <laughs> but because they all took turns wailing on this glorified extra, yeah. They have to. They have this mad scramble at the end, where you know he's going to throw the guns away, and they're calling him, and and you yeah. don't know how it ends. You don't. Know I how love it ends. that any movie, you know, if there's a freeze frame on sort of the last uh, attempt to you know clean up the mess slash take advantage of the mess, mm -hmm. and you don't know which side of that line they're going to fall on. So I yeah. love that. 
Right? It just ends with a freeze frame. Yeah. It actually, uh, the first thing that came to mind, and it's a totally different genre, totally different era of filmmaking, totally different school of thought, but actually reminded me of The Thing, The End of The Thing. Oh, yeah. Where it has the courage to not tell you yeah, 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 yeah. how this gets resolved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you are left, you get to leave the theater and debate with your buddies, or yep. your mates. You get to debate with your mates. Right. Which that makes will happen. it different from Pulp Fiction yep. and different from The Wild Bunch. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's good stuff. All right. So, you know what? I kind of have this negative view of Guy Ritchie's career. I love this movie, but. Uh, you know, I've never seen Snatch. i got to see that. Uh, but you have a higher view of him as a director. I think he's a really, really, really talented director. I think he has made some real winners. Obviously, I love Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. I, am a, I haven't seen it all the way through, but what I've seen and what I've heard of Rock and Rolla, which is his 2008 spiritual successor to this film... Is, is very good. I've, I've enjoyed what I've seen of that. I, and you were saying something interesting about that movie. That So Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels in 1998 really sets a, a whole set of actors onto their careers. And then Rock and Rolla. Yeah, Rock and Rolla is like the next class, if you're thinking in terms of like high school or college, it's the next class of great British actors. So there's that generation, the end of the 90s. And yep. most of the folks from... You know, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels go on to do other stuff. Yep. And then the cast of the 2008 Rock and Roll movie is Gerard Butler, Tom Wilkinson, who's who's an older guy, but, you know, he's come into his own. Idris Ebla, uh, Mark Strong, Tom Hardy. Like, it's the next class. Yeah. Toby Cabell. It's the next class. We should watch that. He graduates a whole... Ludacris is in the film. (laughs) Guy Ritchie graduates not one, but two classes of great British actors. So that's worth a lot to me. Yeah. Uh, I'm um, going to have to watch more of his stuff. And I've heard uh, a lot of people say great things about Snatch. And uh, it got good reviews when it came out. So I just need to watch that. And I think the Sherlock Holmes films, like, they're not to my taste. But I think it's amazing that he can make a movie with a budget of, like, $150 million or $200 million, however those much movies mm-hmm, cost. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I can see his fingerprints there. He's not mm-hmm. lost in the system. That's totally a Guy Ritchie film, especially okay. having seen Locks Talking to Spoken Barrels. And that's doubly impressive because he could really phone in the directing of Sherlock Holmes and just let Robert Downey Jr. one one Right, yeah, just run the cameras on RDG. It doesn't matter. But I think that has his stamp on it. And the other thing is Guy Ritchie's always going to get a thumbs up from me and like a a, a fist bump if I ever see him because he is a huge, not ironic, not surface level, in-depth Halo nerd. Oh, he loves Halo <laughs> to the point that. where in the King Arthur movie he made in 2017, which bombed. There's a there's a scene where one of the one of the the knights are charging across a bridge, and there's this Hungarian hymn that's playing. Yeah, and everyone's like, "Whoa, this is crazy! What is this?" And and he got that from a really obscure live-action Halo television commercial they made in 2009 Whoa. for Halo ODST, one of the spin-off games, where they used the same Hungarian hymn. Huh. And he asked Microsoft for their permission to use it. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, sure, but we don't have any more high-quality recordings of that song. So he got like the London Symphony Orchestra and wow. like a choir nice. because there was no extant surviving version of that thing. Cool. And he just ripped it from the commercials and had them sing it. It's he's such a nerd. He's wow, a huge nerd. That's really cool. He's just he's just stealth about it. He's just yeah. a stealth nerd. Awesome. You know. And now he gets to do 
Aladdin. Uh, okay, so here's what I was saying before. <laughs> I think he's a very, very talented director who will do anything. Lock, stock, he, and one smoking carpet. It, it's he. He'll do. You can. He will take the money. I feel like he's he's in a very. He probably has a very similar mentality about directing at this point that Christopher Walken has about acting. He probably yeah. sees it as like, dude. You're paying me, and I get to live my dream. Like, yeah, it yeah, doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah. Like, he did The Man from Uncle. And I'm a light guy, Richie. But I'm not going to go see The Man from Uncle. I don't care. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I heard it was fine, but no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I didn't see that either. I'm not going to watch Guy Ritchie's Madonna video collection, like, <laughs> which is something he directed. I'm not just making a funny joke about no, his personal true. life. it's true. He it's directed true. Madonna Celebration, the video collection. Yeah. Oh, God. He's done some Nike ads, does, too. Doesn't like, that counteract the halo coolness? No, nah, he, he did. Isn't that a wash? It is kind of a wash. That's rough. <laughs> oh, they made a Snatch TV series. Nice. Nice. Well, Good of him. Anyway, so uh, we can't uh, end this episode without touching on something that we're going to have to talk about with Pulp Fiction and with The Wild Bunch, which is the level of violence. So there's a pretty high body count. In locks, stock, and two smoking barrels, just like there are in the other two movies. Uh, how did you take the violence? It's a cartoon. It's uh, you winced a couple times, like when they were going after the guy's foot through the cage. Yeah, that's but that's such a but that is in contrast to everything else. That's that scene. So they blow a dude's foot off, you know, to try and get other people to take them seriously. But there's sadism, like when he's using the guy's face for a golf tee. Yeah, I just... <laughs> but a lot of it happens off camera. A lot of it happens off camera because they clearly just don't have the money to do this kind of violence. <laughs> like, they really clearly are trying to pinch their pennies or pence at every opportunity. Right. The level of violence here... I don't know, it oscillates between being very, you know, Tarantino-esque of like... Uh, Tarantino Reservoir Dogs ask where it's like I'm going to cut the dude's ear off you know yep. we're going to blow the dude's foot off you know yeah. those are very similar Yeah. but at the same time there's the joke about the shotgun being blown through the guy's hair yeah, I thought of, it had blown through his head yeah, but it went no, through his hair some of it's and very then, silly and the rest of the night he's walking around like a zombie like that's the whole joke yeah. it's like yeah. it didn't hit him but he's so scared of it and after somebody gets shot in this movie it's clearly you know there's there's no <laughs> the makeup is not very good, let's just say. No, it's, it's just like it's, a wet spot on his shirt. No, you know? and it's, it's... The fabric isn't even torn. When they go back to their apartment and there's been this gigantic shootout, there's supposed to be like 20 dead people in their apartment. You know, at no point do you look at them walking around the, the corpses and go, wow, look at those corpses. You're, you're looking at them going... Okay, don't breathe, anybody. Don't, right? nobody, everyone hold your breath. Because <laughs> it's so clearly fakeish. Yeah. It's just a bunch of actors lying around. Or even non-actors lying around. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's people who have never acted before. Well, so that's the funny thing about the tagline of the movie where it says, you know, it gives criminals a bad name. But yeah. how many of these people are criminals? Yeah. No, a lot the, of them. A lot of Jason these... Statham has really sold, like, fenced watches on the street. <laughs> that routine you see him doing at the start of the film is just a routine that he's done. Yeah, you can. He does it very well. A disgrace to criminals everywhere. Yeah, except that all of these unknowns that he cast had criminal records. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 a down and dirty film, and it's it revels in it. Um, and I think the violence is is kind of a natural consequence of of the stuff that's happening on the screen. But I I don't. If we're comparing it to the Wild Bunch, I think it's more impactful than the Wild Bunch. I agree. But at the same time, there's definitely moments where 
I don't know, he kind of wants to have his cake and eat it too here. Where, like, the violence is like, we're going to blow this dude's foot off, and it's like an 80-pound woman gets up off a couch, picks up a machine gun, and fires it without any sort of problems with the recoil, you know? Right. So Right, that's a very Kill Bill Yeah, it's 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 kind of both ways, and if this yeah. film actually has any weakness, I think it might be in its depiction of violence. Because it oscillates between the cartoonish, like, you mm-hmm. know, you blew a hole through my hair, and the end where... You know, the, the big tough guy, the, the former football yeah. player, is you don't see it. You don't see any of the blood. You don't right. see it happening to the guy because right. it's from his first-person viewpoint. Looking up. He's getting his head crushed in a car door repeatedly. repeatedly. Yeah, yeah. So so that's why, in comparing it to the other two movies, I actually I like this because it doesn't show you a lot of stuff. Yeah, a right. lot of it's just implied. Right, right. Especially the car door thing at the end. Right? Yeah. You, you never see the guy's head um, the way you see a character at the end of The Wild Bunch being dragged through the dirt. Yeah, or, or and, and Tarantino would never have such restraint. Tarantino would show you the well, dude's head we'll getting crushed. We'll get to crushed. that, we'll get to Dude, that. Dude, I just watched a bunch of clips of Inglorious Bastards on YouTube. He has no restraint anymore. Not anymore, but we're going to do an episode about Pulp Fiction where there is restraint. So anyway, that's, that's the other episode. But yeah, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels holds up really well. It gives you star-making performances from, from many people. A lot of first-time actors in this. Yep, yep. I think it's a master class of plotting and directing. Mm-hmm. And and it has Sting. It has Sting. And it's, oh, he's so cool. He's so cool. It's got <laughs> a great soundtrack. Great soundtrack. I, I just downloaded it. Yeah, where you know most of it's like British, like... Turn of the Millennium Rock and a little bit of Electronica. This so, is the world that the Kaiser Chiefs come from. Yeah, the Kaiser Chiefs come from this. This is where the Prodigy is living. Like this yeah, is this yeah. is this is. Oh man, if I could teleport back. To this is your year, life. This is where I want to live. I don't want to live in England. I want to live in England at the turn of the millennium. That's where I want to live. Well, and you were just mentioning that this is literally taking place like a few blocks from where you had. Yeah, your, when uh, I studied abroad, I lived near yeah. Farrington and. This is Barrington. I mean, that I've crossed that bridge where he's dumping the guns. You know, nice. It's, it's nice. I've never been to JD's pub because I didn't have the appreciation at the time. But yeah. if I had, I, I would have. You would have made a pilgrimage. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, this. So is... I got to go back. Is the real message of this film? <laughs> but, I got to go. But don't really plan. Yeah, no, don't plan. Just get the ticket. And just go. A day before and just go. (laughs) If you plan, you're dead. Which is what Grandpa Don would have done. It's weird because I feel like the the (laughs) message of this film was almost identical to Top Gun, which is, you know, don't think. If you think, you're dead. I suppose. Just react. Well, I like this movie a lot better. And so that's what I enjoy about doing... uh, Oh, we're not going to podcast Top Gun. You know, I can be convinced. <laughs> I can be convinced, but hold on. This We're is... getting off topic of... of, of I just want to say that else. this episode and this movie is uh, why I have enjoyed doing the podcast for the last two years in that, you know, I, I didn't create uh, this idea in my head to browbeat you with classic movies. That was 15 years ago. <laughs> but now I want to see how things play, you know, with you as an adult. Uh, and I think you like this movie... Uh, for what it represents in your lifetime. You yeah. know, the music, the fact that you were in London, the fact that you know uh, larger pieces of Richie's career now yeah. than I do. You know, I'm coming along for the ride on this one. I loved this when I first saw it. I loved it again today when we saw it. But you know what? We're meeting in the middle. Yeah, it's great. It's awesome. Go back, watch Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. It's worth your time. Uh, it's we watched it on Netflix, free on Netflix. You can folks. watch it on Netflix. Go grab it. Go give it a give give it your eyeballs. It'll be worth it. So, All right. You want to do our? You want to play us out, Sam? You can 
Well, you can play us out. Okay. I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this has been the Re-View Podcast. I forgot to mention they put in I Want to Be Your Dog by the Stooges. Yeah. (laughs) Love it.